0: All persons having business before the honorable the Supreme Court of the United
1: States are admonished to draw near and give their attention.
2: Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind twelve historic Supreme Court decisions.
3: Number 759, Ernest Miranda. Petitioner
4: versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade.
5: Quite often in many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate
6: very
7: dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society
8: of 310 million different people who
1: helped stick together because they believe in a rule of law.
0: Good evening and welcome to Landmark Cases, our series that explores the people and stories behind some of the Supreme Court's most important decisions throughout our history. This week, the 1952 Steel Seizure Case. It's officially known as Youngstown Steel and Tube Company versus Sawyer. To get us started tonight, we're going to start with a piece of vintage uh, film. It's from a documentary, and it features President Harry Truman on April 8, 1952, as he announces to the nation his seizure of the nation's steel industry.
1: With American troops facing the enemy on the field of battle, I would not be living up to my oath of office if I fail to do whatever is required to provide them with weapons, and ammunition they need for their survival. Therefore, I'm taking two actions. First, I'm directing the Secretary of Commerce to take possession of the steel mills. The issue in this story is the power of the President and its limits. Not often is the President's authority directly attacked in a lawsuit. But that is what happened in the administration of Harry S. Truman in the second year of the Korean War when he ordered the federal government to seize the major steel mills of the United States. The legality of that action, debated with intense feeling, was finally resolved by the United States Supreme Court. This is the story of its ruling and the conflict that led to it. The story of a president's power contested.
0: And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the president's power and what the Supreme Court had to say about its limitations. Let me introduce you to our two guests who will be with us for the next 90 minutes to talk about the steel seizure case. Michael Gerhardt, University of North Carolina Law School professor. He's the author of a book called Power of Precedent and Forgotten Presidents, Their Untold Constitutional Legacy. William Howell is University of Chicago American Politics Professor and the author of numerous books on presidential powers, including Thinking About the Presidency, The Primacy of Power. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Well, Thank you. for both of you, what are this the very succinct issues about the steel seizure case? What's the heart of this?
7: At, at its heart, this is a, a story and a, and a case about presidential power and its limits during times of war. And it. It puts before the court central themes about the conditions under which presidents during times of emergency can do things that may not be expressly stated in the Constitution um, and the limits that Congress and the courts can place on it.
0: What makes it a landmark case?
5: Well, I think the, the critical question the court is ultimately, ultimately unable to avoid is the constitutionality of, of the president's seizure of the steel mills. That in itself is kind of a Titanic. It's just a tremendous conflict, um, which is really important at the time and sense. I think what makes it really historic are two things. One is it's about structure. It's about the basic relationship between president and Congress. Most of the other wonderful cases you're covering are about rights. But structure also has to do with protecting the American people in certain respects and requiring our leaders to follow certain guidelines. And the other is I think it gives us a language to talk about structure. It gives us very important sort of concepts that we're going to use later in cases involving separation of powers down the road. And our, our basic language for being able to talk about separation of powers is going to be tr- traceable to this case.
0: Okay, well, let's get to the background. This took place in the time of the Korean War, the Korean conflict, which uh, began when the North invaded South Korea on June 25, 1950. Now, it's important that uh, there was never a declaration of war. Why is that significant in the case that unfolds?
7: Well, it comes to the aftermath of World War II, which was the last time that Congress actually declared a war. And what we have in this case is the U.N. National Security uh, uh, Council comes forward <clears throat> and recommends, calls for military action the United States gets involved in. Um, but famously Truman calls this not uh, a war but a police action um, in, res- in, a, in response to a, pr- a query from a reporter. And this is really important because it sets the framework for the discussion that's going to follow. And it opens up lots of opportunities for members of Congress to criticize the president. and makes it harder time for the president to walk this line between on the one hand, wanting to argue on behalf of deference and um, acquiescence by the adjoining branches of government, while also um, claiming that they shouldn't be interfering or meddling with his constitutional rights to to wage war, given that he's not calling this a war.
0: So there's an important legal distinction I'm understanding between a state of war and an emergency situation?
5: Well, there could be. That's one of the issues in this case, is whether this still qualifies as an emergency in the absence of a declaration of war. Uh, and as William points out, one of the, the tricky things here for President Truman is that he's, he's backed into a corner, because the more he talks about this as being war, it's going to be less popular for him. I mean, the nation has just come out of a horrible world war. Uh, we're about to enter into what he calls a police action, which is going to cost thousands and thousands of lives. And the more people become aware of that, it's going to be harder for Truman. So Truman has to figure out what am I going to emphasize publicly that's going to allow me to maintain some popularity and power if, I, if it's based on the popularity and still get done what I want to get done.
0: Well, what was Harry Truman's situation with the public by this point?
7: It wasn't good by the time the this court case rolls around. Um, his approval ratings when you first assume office were in, way off the charts. He was doing phenomenally well. They plummet rapidly in the aftermath of World War II. He gets a bump up when he gets reelected in 1948, um, but and a, and a slight bump up in the when the war uh, begins up into the mid 40s, his approval ratings are. But by the time the Supreme Court case rolls around, his approval ratings are in the mid 20s, which is a low point in the modern presidency. We don't see those sorts of numbers until the trail the tail end of Bush in his second term.
0: What about uh, also the um, state of the economy at that point?
7: Well, it was fragile. Um, there was it, was it was a lot that was expanding right in the aftermath of World War II. There's a tremendous amount of growth occurring, but one of the themes that we're going to see played out is a concern that the war is going to disrupt this growth and it's going to lead to high inflation. And so, at the center of this um, this case, are a set of concerns uh, about price controls and wage controls, um, and to ensure that the economy is well functioning, which will matter both to keep the public um, happy with their government and also to um, to ensure that the, the the economy is funding the war and and, and supporting the troops.
5: There may be another thing to keep in mind here uh, is this case is also ultimately about power. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about with Harry Truman, because by the time this case rolls around, he's a lame duck. He's so unpopular, he can't run again. Uh, and yet, he's about to do something which is a tremendous exercise of authority um, in spite of that low popularity, and he's going to try and get away with it. Um, he announces yeah. he's
7: not going to run again in March of that year. He right. could have run, and as
5: you say. He, and uh, a month later, he's a, he's going to do something which I think even would make people, to, people today amazed that a president could try to do this. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and what about his relationship with Congress?
5: Ne- never good. <laughs> uh, and it's certainly not good at this point in time either. Um, so he's got a lot going on in the country, a lot going on politically. There's a lot of labor strikes going on, which is going to obviously spill over into this case. Um, at the same time... He's got a lot of difficulties within his party, of course, and with the other party as well. So he and Congress don't really ever get along very well. Uh, He even vetoes one of the critical pieces of legislation, but his veto is overridden. Critical pieces of legislation for this case called the Taft-Hartley Act. uh, Congress basically responds by overriding his veto. Um, So it's, it's a very tense relationship. And that may also shade what he's going to do.
0: Well, while you mentioned Taft-Hartley, talk a little bit more about that, because uh, Harry Truman himself was pro-union. Did he see Taft-Hartley as being anti-union?
5: Yes, he absolutely saw it as anti-union. And uh, that was one of the reasons why he both tried to veto it and would later be very reluctant to follow it, even if it applied in this case. Um, So Truman doesn't want to really alienate the unions. That's a whole other dimension, which is real important in the context of this case. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to maintain his popularity with the unions while at the same time trying to figure out the legal authority uh, he's going to use. I was just note, it's interesting in his announcement, he talked about failing to do the right thing. doesn't really talk about the law at all in that early statement about his authority to do this. He's just trying to do the right thing here. So he's thinking in basic political terms.
7: Yeah, this is an argument in many ways about expediency. It's about maintaining an ongoing war effort. And he's asking... Congress to excuse me we guys acting the Supreme Court to step aside and recognize that he and he alone has this obligation.
5: Asking both branches, really, to step aside so he can do this.
0: We have a Facebook comment, and I'll tell uh, you at home in just a minute how you can be involved in this program, three ways you can do that. But already posting on Facebook, Jesse Kilgore writes, look at what he did to the coal unions during this time as well. Some might also be interested in knowing that he wanted to propose rounding up railroad strikers, drafting them into the military, and killing labor leaders who would not run the trains. Uh, so, in fact, did he get involved with other, other industries? Well, concerns
7: about strikes have a long history in matters involving war. They were at the center of FDR's efforts mm-hmm. to keep the domestic economy in order. And he comes to a set of agreements with unions um, that he goes out and beseeches them not to strike and beseeches Congress to give him a set of statutory authority to, to quash strikes to ensure that anything related to the war, which was just about everything... In the domestic economy, in a total war like World War II, um, wouldn't interrupt that 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 effort. And in the aftermath, I mean, we were talking about Taft-Hartley uh, uh, that was enacted in 1948. The Republicans they had two years there where they got control of Congress. Um, one of the things that they're reacting to when they enact Taft-Hartley um, was the this massive influx of strikes that occurred in the aftermath of World War II. And so, um, tr- when Truman was was in power, and so he had every reason to to worry about the the introduction of strikes and, was, and, the, introduc- and the, the ways in which they may interrupt the, the, the and war. I,
5: I think one thing that's related to that is Roosevelt had a different set of statutory mechanisms available to him, different things he could rely on for authority to, for example, seize control of particular businesses or industries. And then when Truman comes in, he's going to end up with a different set of statutes, uh, more restrictive in a sense than what Roosevelt had to deal with.
0: Well, uh, I mentioned you getting involved, and that really makes this program work for us. There's three ways that you can do it. First of all, there's already a conversation underway on Facebook, so find C-SPAN on Facebook and you'll see the posting about landmark cases and join the conversation there. You can also tweet us, and we'll mix tweets in throughout the next uh, 90 minutes of our program. And when you do, it's really important for you to use the hashtag landmark cases. That will allow us to sort through and get your comments to air here. And then finally, you can call us, and we like to hear your voices. Here are two ways you can do it depending upon where you live in the country. Eastern and Central time zones, 202-748-8900. Mountain and Pacific time zones, 202-748-8901. And we'll begin taking calls in about 10 minutes or so, so you can get into queue. So, next up is another documentary, and this is about Youngstown, Ohio, and its importance to the nation's steel production. We're going to learn more about the steel industry at that time and the impact that a strike could have on the nation's economy and its war preparation.
1: This is my hometown. It's called Youngstown, and it's in the state of Ohio near the Pennsylvania boundary. In Youngstown, we make steel. We make steel and talk steel. Look down any street in town, and you'll see the mills at the end of it. There are 25 miles of them along the Mahoning River, and today they're busy day and night. Every eight hours, a shifts change. 15,000 men to the ship.
6: The Mahoning Valley, named for the Mahoning River, was pretty amazing. Just one after the other, you would see blast furnaces, and you could see the coking operation. You could see all the other factory buildings, and just, it was hard to tell where one began and where the other one ended. The Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, by the 1940s, was one of the largest steel companies in the nation and the largest employer in the state of Ohio. According to the 1950 census, There were about, in the Mahoning Valley, about a little over 400,000 people. Of that, 70,000 worked in steel or a related industry. Of that 70,000, 40,000 worked in basic steel production. Certainly it's important because you need to manufacture munitions and that sort of thing for the proverbial hot war. The Korean War was a hot war. And they needed steel for munitions, tanks, for jeeps, for all of those things that you needed in the Second World War as well. So if the steel industry went on an industry-wide strike, that was going to be a real problem, because it's basic to the things that an army and navy need uh, and air force need to fight a war. Well, gentlemen, let's set the stage for what happened
0: to actually cause the steel uh, workers to want to go out on strike. What were the conditions?
7: Well, it was the the view of the laborers that the industry was making it a tremendous amount of money, um, and that money wasn't being directed towards them, and so they were calling for wage increases.
0: And they were making money because of war production?
7: In no small part. I mean, the... the, the the steel industry was operating nearly at capacity at this time, they were producing a tremendous amount of steel. Um, and so uh, the, the workers thought that they were due um, an increase in wages, um, but this was at a time when the government was involved in setting wages and in setting prices. And so one of this is going to be a fight between not two parties but three, and the government's going to have a, an important role to play in, in balancing whether or not, and deciding whether or not there ought to be a response an in increase in the price of steel. To, to cover the costs associated with a, an increase in wages.
0: There was an institution established called the Wage Stabilization Board. Uh, what was its role in
6: this case?
5: Well, Truman's going to try and use it to his advantage. Right? Truman actually can get gets basically a deal, if, so to speak, in putting forth to the board what the wage demand would have been from the unions. The problem is he can't get the price um, at the level that he wants. Um, it's, it ends up being the, the uh, steel companies want something like twelve to thirteen dollars a ton um, and they can't get anywhere close to that um, none of the the, the price stabilization uh, uh, they they um, they won't go anywhere near that so it creates a real problem you can't get this, the the companies and the unions therefore to arrive at any kind of co- deal uh, you can only get something that looks much more favorable to the union uh, and Truman realizes this um, and the, it's a problem
7: you have these two units the office of price stabilization and the wage stabilization board and each is charged with a different function and this was done on purpose in part to ensure that they wouldn't be working together because the whole point is to tamp down inflation they don't want wages to increase and then prices to increase and then wages to right and in it to escalate Um, But it makes for a mess in trying to handle the negotiations that proceed.
0: So in the the late months of 1951, this is all really starting to percolate. And Harry Truman, it seems, would have several options to exercise other than seizure. So he could have asked Congress for its endorsement. He could have invoked Taft-Hartley, as I'm understanding you explained. He also could have... Uh, turned it over, which he did, to this wage stabilization board and lived by what it said. All of those were options available. And as the year ended, he was talking to the public and it seemed like other things were on the table except for
6: seizure.
7: For sure. So the union comes out and, on November 1st, 1951, and threatens um, and announces, which they had to do under Taft-Hartley, their set of uh, restrictions on the ability of unions to strike and they have to make announcements when they plan to strike. So they come out on November 1st saying, we're planning to strike. Um, and then and on, there's a
0: cooling-off period after that? And there's a cooling-off
7: period thereafter, exactly. And then um, December 31st, uh, Truman announces that he's going to go to the Wage Stabilization Board and seek their counsel on on what the increase in wage ought to be. Um, and the union voluntarily then steps aside and backs off um, uh, and delays the strike, which uh, which allows for an additional cooling-off period, but it's it gets pretty quickly just as soon as the office um, as soon as the uh, wage stabilization board comes forward with this recommendation
0: so then bring us up to date to March and April of that year when this really becomes uh, the decision to steal uh, to, to seize the steel mills uh, what happens that leads what's the tick tock
7: so the tick tock is that on um, March 20th the wage stabilization board comes forward and makes a recommendation that includes um, an increase of um, uh, wages at twelve and a half cents that are going to be backdated to January first, and then two subsequent two and a half cent increases, um, and then some fringe wage benefits as well that are going to be given. And there's uh, it's predicted the predictions vary, but it looks like it about it's going to cost about twenty six cents per worker per hour to the industry. Crucially, there also is then a union shop is recognized by um, the uh, wage stabilization board, and that's a, an important thing that union really cares about. Um, and the uh, management pivots quickly and says, we can't possibly cover this, right? We can't possibly incur these costs without a substantial increase in, in the price, which will allow us to cover these costs.
0: And so what happens?
7: Well, there's negotiations that go back and forth between March 20th and August 8th. And those negotiations a- April 8th, yeah, excuse me, April 8th, yep. Um, and uh, they fail, right? The, the, the president is intervening, hoping that they'll come to a voluntary agreement between labor and management. Um, they fail, and, um, the, uh, the, the, um, and as we saw, Truman comes out on the 8th of April and mm-hmm. announces that he's going to seize the steel mills.
0: So uh, the tensions are really rising around the country. It, uh, April 4th, the, talk, the talks collapse. And it's April 8th that Harry Truman goes to the public and announces that he's doing this. What do we know uh, from historical records about Truman's advisors? Was he acting on his own accord from a sense of righteousness, or was he getting a lot of advice? He's getting a
5: lot of advice, um, and it's not all uh, uniform. (laughs) Mm. Um, And, you know, in a sense, there's a lot of lawyers spending a lot of time on this from all sorts of different parts of the administration, Defense Department, Justice Department, the White House. Um, and they are looking at every avenue we just talked about. Uh, and they're trying to figure out which, if any, of those statutes we just talked about provides a, the means by which the president could then take actual control over the operation of the steel mills. Um, and almost one by one, each of the statutes gets knocked out. Um, Taft hardly ends up being the one that comes back around the most. Um, uh, some of the others get dismissed because it, they, they seem to apply much more narrowly to circumstances and involve c- condemnation and a much more administrative procedure than the president wants to have. And part of the problem with Taft-Hartley, besides the fact that the president hates it, um, is he's already used some of these other administrative mechanisms. So that's one thing. He says, look, i have already down the road here on these other mechanisms. The other, uh, as we just pointed out, is the cooling off period actually is extended too far, uh, 99 days. Um, And that's even more than the Taft-Hartley Act would have asked for. So he doesn't feel like he can use that either. So in a way, as time goes on, the negotiations are failing. The legal arguments are, in a sense, are combating against each other, and they're almost knocking each other out. Uh,
7: there also are a set of e- advisors right. who are economic, economists as well. The mm-hmm. Council of Economic Advisors is coming in, and they're suggesting to Truman that, look, the steel industry can cover these costs. They can absorb these costs. And so he's getting this advice that's telling him that suggests you can, you can push through these wages, and you ought to take a harder stance against management then certainly management would like, which is part of, then, the reason why we, they're at loggerheads and we end up having to see the takeover.
0: So the union announces th- that it's going to strike on April 9th, and on April 8th, the night before, Harry Truman goes to address the nation. Let's watch.
1: Plain fact is, though most people don't realize it, the steel industry has never been so profitable as it is today, at least not since the profiteering days of World War One. And yet, in the face of these facts, the steel companies are now saying they ought to have a price increase of $12 a ton, giving them a profit of $26 or $27 a ton. That's about the most outrageous thing I ever heard of. They not only want to raise their prices to cover any wage increase, they want to double their money on the deal. You may think this steel dispute doesn't affect you. You may think it's just a matter between the government and a few greedy companies, but it isn't. If we granted the outrageous prices the steel industry wants, we would scuttle the whole price control program, and that comes pretty close to home.
7: You're listening to C-SPAN's
5: Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment.
0: For both of you, what are you hearing the president doing in making the case to the public here, and how will it figure into the, the case that we're going to discuss?
7: He's shaming management, right? He's saying these are a bunch of profiteers who are using this dispute as an opportunity to extract um, and to price gouge. And this, in the background, is a war, right? And this is this careful line that he's trying to draw. It's, it's not really a war. It's police action, and yet, our troops are fighting and dying on the front lines, and this industry is central to maintaining the war effort. And what is management doing? They're they're, they're being unreasonable in their demands.
5: And, of course, this is largely a political argument. Um, and so there's a bit of a divide here between the legal arguments he's going to have to make and the political argument he's clearly making. Um, he's got to make an argument to the American people, and that means speaking plainly to them. Um, and it's designed, I think, to kind of cast the blame on what's happening, of course, on the management and saying look you know they're they're forcing us into this situation and there's a crisis in the sense that they've helped um make worse and i'm gonna you know therefore my options for dealing with it are few and far between
0: it seems as though the steel company lawyers were well prepared for this uh because Very. they moved quickly what did they do
5: <laughs> but, well before the evening is done they're at the home of one of the judges in district of columbia trying to get a, a temper what's called a temporary uh, restraining order an injunction uh to stop the uh, the fight the judge basically says I'm not going to do that without the government being present so he orders a hearing the next morning
0: so it moved that quickly they were knocking on the judge's door the night of Harry Truman's announcement and this the, the case was uh, hearing was the next
6: day
7: they got right in and the the arguments were fast and furious on on both sides so you have Truman and his lawyers not Truman but Truman's lawyers arguing about the the, the need for expediency and and restraint on the part of the judiciary so that we can attend to this problem, Um, and the lawyers uh, on uh, management declaring this gross abuse of executive power.
0: We'll learn more about the arguments made at this level of the court and how they impacted the public's perception of the case in just a couple of minutes. But let's start taking some of your phone calls. First up is David, who's watching us in Tulsa. Hi, David. You're on the air. Welcome.
9: Hi. uh, I'd like to ask the question, did the Cold War motivate Truman in any way uh, in his decision, Uh, and did it have an effect upon the Supreme Court as well?
5: Either of us can take this. Uh, Yes, the the Cold War definitely was a factor. One, and let me just mention one aspect of it. Um, This is also um, paralleling the McCarthy era, Um, and so there's a lot of concern about communists infiltrating the government. Uh, a lot of, uh, there's a tremendous amount of anti-communism sort of fervor out there. And this is partly also what not, has not just gotten America into this military fight, but the president's going to manage that as well. He's going to, and so he's, he's clearly concerned with try, trying to stop the spread of communism, but he's also trying to deal with the, the alleged corruption within his own administration um, as congressional leaders, some of whom are saying that's a problem you've got. So all of this is stuff he's trying to deal with.
7: Yeah, and the Korean War in many ways was a proxy war with the Soviet Union. You've got the Soviet Union and China in the background, and the Cold War is just beginning. It's the, the former ally of the United States in World War II has become the foe, and this is just now beginning to be worked out.
0: A viewer on Twitter asks about the hot war. Uh, he asks, uh, this is Rod mm-hmm. I. Davis, do you think that the war was used as leverage by the steel industry to get what they wanted, the Korean War?
7: was the war itself. I mean, the war, they were certainly producing at really high levels in no small part because of the war. Um, you don't hear Truman, if anybody was going to make that argument, you would have heard Truman making that argument. You don't see him saying that they're leveraging the war per se to price gouge, but rather they're using this, this showdown, this dispute, this labor dispute as the excuse for doing so. But it's because of, let me just say, it's because of the war that um, labor thinks that management is making a lot of money, which in some ways is the impetus for, for the demand for higher wages.
0: Patrick is watching us in Mount Kisco, New York. Hi, Patrick, you're on.
10: Oh, hi, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> I just briefly wanted to refer quickly to uh, Karamatsu, which was on last week. And as uh, Justice Scalia said, uh, that this, something like this could happen again. Uh, And let me just fast forward now to when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, replaced the air traffic controllers with military controllers because they went uh, out on strike, uh, albeit the uh, air traffic controllers, I believe, were federal employees. Uh, My question now is, with the passage of the War Powers Act and even further the Patriot Act, do you see uh, any problem or any issues with uh, an executive an executive order now by the president to do something similar uh, like, is ha- like happened in Youngstown?
5: Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, with regard to the War Powers Resolution, um, presidents generally ignore it. Uh, they, don't, they don't abide by it at all, except maybe to pay lip service to it. But otherwise, it doesn't really make much an effect on what they do. Um, and in terms of whether or not a president could do something this, um, let's, let's call it extreme, um, I think it depends on context. Um, the other thing to note about this particular case, I think, is the extent to which the president's actions turn out to be unpopular. If the president were to do something and it were, would be popular, it's a different dynamic. Um, and I think with, with, with Truman, uh, his, his, as we pointed out at the beginning, his popularity is plummeting through, through this. Um, uh, and that is, I think, I, I think we've got to at least acknowledge that as one of the arguable constraints on what's happening,
7: the political economy too about how we go to war has also changed in really important ways. So the steel industry is has a, a measure of in, independence, and that that the the military industrialized sector of today does not. There's a much level, it's much more um, regimented between the relationships between the defense industry and the production of munitions today than there were. 50, 60 years ago, and I think that plays an important role as well. We should say there's plenty of disputes, contemporary disputes, about how presidents use their war powers at home, and we haven't been talking about the nationalization of any industry throughout these disputes.
0: Ed is in Danbury, Connecticut, and you're on. Hi, Ed.
9: Hi. Um, uh, Truman lost the case, but the steel was produced. So how did that come about? And uh, did the case have maybe an indirect effect, uh, even though he lost either through industry, uh, unions, or the public?
0: Well, I'm going to ask you not to get too far ahead because we want to tell the story about how they lost. But uh, anything for that caller at this point in time?
7: Or shall we just wait? Oh, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay. they, they do stay strike, and there. it <laughs> does get resolved.
0: All right, <laughs> so stay with us. I guess that's the, uh, the, the, the main message here. Uh, on the 50th anniversary of the steel seizure case, Duquesne University Law School and the Harry Truman Library did a big retrospective, and they interviewed two of the clerks to Justice Jackson One of them ended up having quite an interesting legal career of himself. Next, you will see a bit of an an oral history of this case, just a clip from it, with uh, Bill Rehnquist, who became the chief justice of the United States. But at the time, in 1952, he was a clerk to Justice Jackson. He talks about where we are in the story right now and the the lower-level federal courts hearing this case and the argument that Harry Truman's representatives made. Let's listen.
4: The government made some extraordinary claims at the very beginning in the district court that the president had all the authority that George III had unless it was taken from him by the Constitution. Well, you can imagine the press outcry about this. I mean, it, it just made headlines. And it just gave a negative aspect. The government abandoned that argument long before it got to the Supreme Court. But it just got the government off on the wrong foot. And there was an ambivalence about the Korean War even at that point, wasn't there? Very much so. There were people fighting and dying in Korea, but very few sacrifices called for on the home front. World, World War I, or rather World War II I'm not that old. (laughs) World War II, you know, you had 14 million people under arms, but a lot of things restricted on the home front. The Korean War, you just didn't have those restrictions on the home front, so there was just a real ambivalence, as you say.
0: With all of the legal counsel the president had gotten before, how did the government get off to such a bad start in making the case in the federal courts? Well, there's an assistant attorney
5: general named Baldrige who I think will be living infamy for having gotten into this mess. Um, out of which the government never fully gets, I should say. Um, and he's, he tries to make the argument partly on the basis of statutory authority. But then he gets into a, a discussion, really, with a district judge, um, in which the district judge does a fabulous job cross-examining um, Baldridge, And it ends up in the paper the next day, because Baldridge basically answers yes when the district judge basically says, this is not limited. There's no real limit to this. Um, or it's up to the executive to determine whether or not um, there's an emergency and when it ends. And, and basically the government's lawyer is saying that's right. And the government really can never escape that. Even in the Court of Appeals and ultimately the Supreme Court, the, the discussion keeps coming back to that. Where is the limit on a president's authority, inherently or otherwise, to be able not just to, to determine something's emergency, but to use extraordinary power during it?
0: Well, let's, for the record, get that district judge's name on, on... Uh, on the air, and it was Walter Bastian, correct?
5: Well, Bastian's the first person they went to. Is judge Pine is actually the, actually the district the judge. Who actually heard the case. Right, right, uh-huh. right.
0: And what do you want to say about this part of the process?
5: Well, the president,
7: president's lawyers are making a case on constitutional grounds, and for all the times that FDR had um, intervened during strikes and taken over industries, which he had done dozens of times... Um, and the courts had affirmed those actions for the most part. Um, they always affirmed them on the, on the, with regards to statutory authority. They had never recognized the president's constitutional authority to nationalize an industry as Truman had done. And so from the get-go, there's a sense in which Truman's lawyers are overplaying their hand.
0: So what was the outcome of this legal proceeding?
7: It does not go well for Truman. Right? It gets shut down in no uncertain terms. It, now, it, notice, it is, all that. Uh, was being asked for it was a preliminary injunction so there was a sense in which what was at stake is just can we put this on hold right now um not do we have to shut it down and what the management was primarily concerned about was whether or not the truman administration was going to increase wages or change the the wage um the terms of um of employment for for the workers while holding um the uh the the steel industry um, and rather than simply making the case uh, on the basis of irreparable damage, which is what's at stake um, in asking for a uh, uh, the lifting of a, excuse me, the imposition of a preliminary injunction, um, the district judge goes all the way and says, look, this thing is illegal through and through. We should shut this thing down. And, and it's, they, it's a they real does.
5: tactical mistake by the government, among other things, although I think the judge was going to get to that issue um, one way or another, um, but... Uh, but many uh, experts have have criticized the government in this case for um, not making the sort of narrower argument in the courts below, which we just sort of went through, which is just simply to say uh, the steel industry is not entitled to um, a preliminary injunction. Uh, That doesn't require getting into the constitutionality of the government's, uh, of the president's action.
0: So uh, what happened next legally? How did it get from this level to the Supreme Court? It
5: gets there fast, Um, and that's another aspect of this case. It ends up in front of the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for so District of Columbia. They end up staying at uh, the judge's order, uh, but then expediting the case along till it gets to the United States Supreme Court. So it's there in very short order, um, faster than the typical case. And in fact, Chief Justice Rehnquist was a law clerk uh, for Justice Jackson, as has been mentioned. He and his fellow clerks went over and heard the Di- District of Columbia argument, having a feeling this case might be coming to them at some point.
0: So uh, you say it's unusual, but the court really can respond very quickly if it needs to. Uh, wh- what makes this particularly unusual that they did it this
5: way? Well, precisely the circumstances we've been talking about. There is a there is there there are boots on the ground in Korea, uh, and that is not lost on anybody. Uh, plus, the steel industry is real concerned about losing control over its its business, and so. No matter which way you look, everybody wants this done yesterday.
0: Mm -hmm. And while it's happening, the steel is continuing to be produced because there's an injunction, and so nothing has happened to production during this.
7: It's continuing to be produced, but the whole argument, what adds to this urgency with the war being in the background, the whole argument is that we cannot stand for uh, an interruption of the flow of steel because it's going to lead to uh, an inability to produce the tanks and the munitions and the planes that are needed to wage the war. The war is very much in the background here.
0: Pat is watching in Milton, Washington. Your question. Hey, Pat.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes.
0: You have a question for us?
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, I know that Harry Truman was not a college-educated president. I think he was the only one. I think. And Lincoln my too. But
4: was, yes. He
1: certainly was not an attorney. Did this have any impact on his his uh, thinking or? I don't know. I, I don't mean to sound snobbery, because I admire the man. <laughs> uh, I'm an old lady, and I was—he was president when I was, you know—and <laughs> I think he was a pretty good guy. But uh, I understand he was not a college-educated man. And okay. I wondered,
0: does does this have any impact? Sure. Yeah. thank you for asking questions.
5: It's a fair question, <laughs> although I, I'm not sure it does ultimately have much impact. We've we've got a number of presidents who didn't have formal education. Uh, who are sharp uh, people, and I think President Truman was perfectly sharp, an intelligent guy. Um, And this is, um, I don't think this happens because he doesn't understand the issues, uh, or he's not sophisticated. I think this turns out to be a a quandary for him, and ultimately a failure for him, because he does fervently believe he's right. That's what he said in in the television address. He believes he's right. And so a president, no matter the level of education, might well believe that.
7: And he's engaging this in very pragmatic terms. I mean, he's aligned with labor. He's concerned about an ongoing war that he's trying to manage. And he's trying to see a way forward. So when he's casting about for statutory authorization, he's looking for the tools he needs to take the action that to him makes sense. Um, And uh, it's that pragmatism, I think, that's really defining the actions that he's taking.
0: Well, before we get to the uh, case at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court itself in 1952 was quite an interesting <laughs> institution. Uh, so give us the, the framework of the court at that time. Uh, who were the overall, the, the political appointees uh, that were made? Uh, what was he facing when, he, when this case went, case went to the court?
5: So the court itself is a, in an interesting point in time. It's got nine Democrats on it. Uh, five were appointed by President Roosevelt, uh, four by President Truman. And Truman, of course, felt that all the... Were friends of his, particularly the ones, of course, he appointed. Um, and he's also appointed the last person ever to be a, a Democratic appointee as Chief Justice, Fred Vinson. Um, so this is called the Vinson Court. Um, and the Vinson Court has got nine really strong people, particularly the eight people other than the Chief Justice, very strong egos, very uh, intellectual, um, very opinionated. And somehow Vinson's got to keep this crew together. Uh, as best he can, he he's say actually. By the time this case rolls around, he's largely failing to keep them together. He doesn't have a record of consensus as far as the court is concerned.
0: The descriptions of the court suggest that it was really torn about by factions. Was it?
7: Well, it, it certainly was. As was the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party was riven in ways then, in ways that the Democratic Party was not today. So there are Southern conservative Democrats in the Democratic Party, just the Northern liberals, um, and many of these people were appointed. Um, with under under FDR, with an eye towards their support for New Deal legislation, um, the extent to which that carries over into their unified support into the into a host of challenges, that new challenges that are presented, um, isn't altogether clear. And we see the emergence of disagreements between them in the aftermath of.
0: Particularly, I've read that there was a, a a Black Justice Black faction and a Felix Frankfurter faction. Is that yes? Fair?
5: And they they've got very different views um, about constitutional law generally, uh, and for, for that matter. Almost everything. Uh, they're also quite different personalities. Um, and so I think when you start zeroing in on the court, you're going to find out even though they're all Democrats, they don't all necessarily like each other. They don't all necessarily respect each other. Um, and by the way, um, President Truman is just a bypass, both Justice Black and Justice Jackson, in appointing his old friend Vincent as Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. My guess is that Black and Jackson have not forgotten that. Uh, so there's even a little bit of personal antipathy to some extent with the president. So there's there's politics here. Um, there's also the fact that all these justices, as we just pointed out, they were appointed because of their support for the New Deal. And it's, what we're seeing is how the test for appointing somebody in the first place might not be relevant 10 years down the road. Mm-hmm. The issues are going to be different. They're going to evolve. And now this group of Democrats are going to be disagreeing about all sorts of things. But Truman misses a lot of this, though. Truman thinks he's going to come out just
7: Right. Just fine, and no small part because these were Democratic right. appointees and they served in his administration and there were people with whom he had personal ties. Yeah. And because and he, he has a
5: conversation it. with one of them, uh, Chief Justice Vinson.
0: Well, do we know that for historical record, that, that, that the Chief Justice and the President were actually talking about this? Well, case?
5: we've got at least one recent book that suggests that they have a conversation. Um, it can't be disproven for fairly obvious reasons. They're, none of the people are alive today and there's no record, record, record of the conversation. But there's a suggestion which might be credible because because Vincent is advising Truman on all sorts of things. Vincent's the chief justice. He's an old political buddy of, of Truman's. That's why he's chief justice. And so there is one suggestion, one allegation um, that, the, that Truman talks to Vincent. We don't know if in person or on phone or how. Um, and Vincent tells him, don't worry, the court's going to side with you.
0: Would that happen today? So do people watching this know that there might be conversations now? Right now we have a president and a chief justice of different parties, but if they were aligned, could you see a president picking up the phone and getting a sense of where things were going?
5: Well, we have different ethical rules and different conventions governing how the judiciary should act today as opposed to then. Uh, So assuming those ethical rules and conventions are followed, I think the answer would be no.
7: We also have a much more thorough vetting process. So it's not clear that they need to get on the phone today in ways that they may have had to a half century ago.
0: Because people would have a better sense of what, what the decisions would be.
7: Democrats are appointing loyal Democrats to the bench just as, as Republicans are appointing loyal uh, conservatives to the bench.
0: There's one other name of a justice I just want to tell people about because it's an interesting personal story, and that's Tom Clark, mm-hmm. who had been Harry Truman's attorney general, right? Yes, it had been Truman's
5: attorney general um, and actually had given him advice similar to... You um, know, in, in the past, similar to what was going on in the present, Clark's going to uh, uh, end up uh, uh, not being re- very popular with Truman. Basically, uh, Truman figures he, he's got Clark in his pocket, and and he's going to be really angry at the court. But I think he's going to be particularly angry at Clark. He's the one person mm-hmm. he's never going to forget. Mm-hmm.
0: And years later, his son Ramsey Clark was named Attorney General by Lyndon Johnson. Is that correct? So is, do you know of any other father-son attorney general appointments in history? It seems like an interesting historical I mean, footnote. It's outside of my balance. That's a great trip. <laughs> yeah, <is that> great? <laughs> okay.
6: Well, I just thought it was, pretty, a
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting to point out that there was a family legacy there. So uh, we are going to learn a little bit more about this, but I want to take some more calls because we've got more people lined up. Uh, next is Chris watching us in Brooklyn. You're on the air.
9: Oh, hi! Thank you for C-SPAN and uh, thank you for the series. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that people really think about uh, when they think about this case is that there were a lot of other options than um, seizing steel mills, and there were a dozen or so governors involved in a lot of local politics. And quite frankly, Harry Truman was not, uh, you know, the uh, the gravitas that um, that FDR was, and uh, Korea was not a declared war, and I think Justice Jackson's um, commentary about the, the powers of the president uh, being at their twilight or their, you know, their apex are, um, uh, you know, are pretty apt. That like, Truman was just not that strong of uh, a president uh, going into this. So, uh, if you're, your your guest can comment that appreciate
7: that. Yeah, true. Truman's playing from a place of weakness, that's for sure. I mean, precisely the things that you're pointing to are reflected in his approval ratings. And he had a number of statutory uh, laws that he could appoint to to draw the authority that he wanted. We've talked about Taft-Hartley. Um, also were the selective service, um, mm-hmm. the amendments, 1948 amendments to the Selective Service Act, some others. But none of them provided a clear pathway to take the actions that he wanted to take, which is why, in the end, when he comes before the court, he's offering a set of arguments that are a mix of statutory authority, a mix of constitutional authority, and then also the relevance of past practice. He wants to say, look, what I'm doing is not new. There's historical precedent for what I'm doing. Um, and the courts should recognize the the legality of it.
0: Next is a call from Eric in Vienna, Virginia. Hi, Eric. Uh,
7: Hi, Uh,
4: thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling uh, from a different perspective, an engineering point of view. Um, I don't know if you understand the difficulties faced by any time there's a a strike or shutdown of a plant. It would take uh, weeks or several weeks uh, to shut down the steel mill um, and probably several weeks to start it up. So timing—you um, just can't uh, turn off the switch and walk away uh, from a steel mill. You've got a lot of things to do to protect the equipment and enable you to come back up. Uh, that's all.
0: Thank you for adding that d- dimension to the discussion.
7: Yeah, which explains the delay between the. Our- Uh, April 4th and April 8th. It's April 4th that the the negotiations break down, and the strike is about to happen um, on the, they're going to start shutting it down four days later. And it's this delay is in part because of these concerns.
0: Steve is in Cloverdale, Virginia. Hi, Steve, you're on.
8: Hey, thank you all so much for taking my call. I I was just wondering about the same time the United Nations is kind of a new, uh, I was wondering if it was a new body, and that if we had uh, outside the United States interests that was, uh, maybe influence in the decisions of not just Truman but the, the government and, and how that may have played a role. Like Dag Hammershaw was uh, doing things as the Secretary General in the um, Congo and this kind of colonial uh, rule and things in England were kind of falling apart. And, um, as, you know, as history was progressing and they were losing their power, it was kind of just a, a grab from um, the, the U.S. and the industry and things and just kind of like a glass grasp that maybe the government was just used by business to um, Maybe it was, you know, even though I know he was going against business. I know it don't not sound but, uh, but outside interest, I guess is my question may have influenced our government Thank and you. Truman.
0: Appreciate it.
7: I don't know of any evidence that suggests that somehow what Truman was doing was acting on the behest of the United Nations um, interestingly, when the United Nations was, when the Charter was signed, it was signed with a promise that when the nation goes to war, that the domestic constitutional obligations would remain in place. Mm-hmm. And so some of the controversy associated with this particular war and, and Truman calling it a police action rather than recognizing it as a war and, and seeking um, due authorization and rather pointing to the UN um, as justification is, is borne out.
0: The oral argument was set for May 12, 1952, about a month after the seizure, uh, and uh, they have set aside five hours for oral argument. Today, the typical oral argument is one hour. Can you comment on the five?
5: Sure. I, that's, a, of course, a huge sign that this is a big case, um, and that kind of tells everybody it's a big case. And, but I should also note that the very relatively short period b- b- uh, between the arguments in the lower courts and the Supreme Court doesn't give the government a lot of time to think of any new arguments. Uh, so they're going to recycle some mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. including the arguments about the basic authority the president's got here. So that, that's going to be one problem, in a sense, the government's got. Um, but I, I think that the, um, the fact that they've set aside so much time is also going to, um, uh, in a sense, allow the court to give this case, well, really tell the American people, we know it's an important case, Um, we've expedited it, it, and we're going to give it a really thorough consideration.
0: There were a number of attorneys who took part in the argument during the the five hours. I want to read the names Mm -hmm. because there's a couple famous ones Mm -hmm. in there. John Davis, who is an attorney for the steel companies. Philip Perlman, U.S. Solicitor General. Arthur Goldberg, a a name that will be familiar Mm -hmm. to some in history. United Steel Workers of America General Counsel. Clifford O'Brien and Harold Heiss, attorneys for the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. The Brotherhood of Local Firemen and engine, and the Order of Railway Conductors. So who in that list do you want to comment upon?
5: Well, it's a, it's a stellar list. I mean, you've got some of the great lawyers of that generation, um, beginning, of course, with John Davis, um, who's famous for all sorts of reasons. He also was Solicitor General of the United States before this. He um, argued
0: one of our earlier cases, did The Schenck case? Yes.
5: And he's going to argue, of course, a big case you're going to be talking about very soon as well, um, Brown. Um, and so Davis is one of the great lawyers, of, of course, of his of generation, the, the, the name, the first name in the famous law firm of Davis Polk in New York City. Um, and he, it, what, but what also we find with Davis is that the steel industry had had a multiple lawyers in, up until this case, and they're realizing that having multiple lawyers isn't helping them necessarily. So they get Davis, in a sense, to consolidate the arguments. He comes in, and he's uh, thought to be a really excellent advocate um, in the case, Uh, To some extent, overshadowing Perlman, who's going to follow, who happens to be the first Jewish Solicitor General of the United States and and, Mm -hmm. is acting uh, Attorney General at the time. Um, And, of course, Goldberg has a very short argument in the case later. But I should say, once uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had mentioned to me, he thought the best argument in the whole case was Goldberg's argument, um, uh, which is overshadowed to some extent because the others have more time.
0: One of our viewers who's watching tweeted is Tom Curry. Tom Curry, by the way, is a journalist we know well. Uh, he tweets about uh, John W. Davis, who argued the steel seizure cases won only 29 percent of the popular vote as a Democratic candidate in 1924. So he was he
5: had, was everywhere. Yes, he did a lot of things. Also been in Congress, I believe. So very distinguished gentleman um, and, and really a veteran of the Supreme Court bar. So he, he's going to get up and um, he's actually not going to be questioned very much by the justices in spite of all that long period of time. Perlman stands up and he's just battered with questions.
0: Well, that's uh, the s- sense of our next video. We're going to return to that oral argument uh, with, uh, excuse me, that oral history with former Chief Justice Bill Rehnquist. Uh, and he is interviewed again in 2002 by Ken Gormley, who was the head of the law school at Duquesne University and recently is was appointed president of Duquesne. Mm-hmm. So that's who you'll see on this video. Let's listen to William Rehnquist.
4: Well, the fact that John W. Davis argued for over an hour and I think was asked only one question. <laughs> I mean, he had a, a style of advocacy that you don't hear nowadays, but it, it was it was very impressive. And then uh, Solicitor General Perlman uh, got a whole bunch of questions uh, from from the court. The clerks weren't present at the conference, but. Uh, George Nebank, my co-clerk, and I were just as dying to find out what happened as I suspect all the other clerks were too. So we followed Justice Jackson into his office when he got back, just as we always did. And he would tell us what happened in conference, and he said, "Well, boys, the president
7: got licked."
0: <laughs> the president got licked.
7: Six to three. And the le- leading with the uh, opinion by Black, which, came, which was affirming in no uncertain terms the defeat of uh, Truman's case. And it in many ways constituted a reaffirmation of the district court ruling, which was sweeping in its indictment. Now, the other justices in the majority opinion are going to break for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll lay out. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a real blow for Truman.
0: I want to ask about court procedure. So we always hear about the Supreme Court that conference is inviolate, that no uh, aides can go into the room when the justices are in conference. But here we have uh, Justice Jackson going right out and, and talking to his clerks about what happened in that room. Is that common?
5: I think that's pretty common. Of course, they're not in the room when it happens, but the clerks are, uh, obviously you know this is a big case. And I'm sure all the other justices are doing the very same thing, going back to their chambers, telling their clerks what happened. Um, and the fact that Black announces this decision is going to be yet another blow to Truman. They, were, they served together in the United States Senate, uh, and they were friendly, um, or so Truman thought, uh, or Truman confused friendship with agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be just one of the many blows he gets here.
0: So the very specific two questions that were before the court are these. First of all. Is it appropriate for the court to make a final determination on the constitutionality of the president's actions when the case is at the preliminary injunction state? So it's a court authority question. And the answer to that question was?
5: Well, the court says the answer to that question is yes. And I guess that's the critical um, answer here. Um, And that in itself is historic. Uh, This is in some respects thought to be the great, the first great separation of powers conflict in the 20th century. This is probably the biggest loss a president's had Um, up until this time in in terms of American history and the Supreme Court. Um, So keep in mind, not too long before, um, uh, the Roosevelt administration has won a dubious victory in the Korematsu case. Um, Now, of course, not too long after, less than a decade later, the president's going to lose big time. And maybe there's a lesson here. Maybe the court itself has begun to think we've given the presidents a little too much slack. But black is somebody who turns out to have a very distinct uh, viewpoint when it comes to constitutional law, separation of powers, He's what's called a formalist. He believes there's legislative power, there's executive power, the taking of property is legislative, and the president doesn't have that power inherently or otherwise. Easy case. It's over. Three pages.
0: And question number two before the court is really at the heart of what we've been talking about. Was the president acting within his constitutional power when he issued an order directing the Commerce Secretary to take possession of and operate most of the nation's steel mills? And the court said...
7: A patently, no. The, the president has no constitutional right to behave in the way that he did, um, and he lacks statutory authority to to intervene as he as he did. It's worth noting that in addition to recognizing a host of uh, statutory options available to the president, including Taft Hartley, um, they went back. Black goes back and notes that um, in the, when when the uh, Congress was enacting Taft Hartley. They were debating whether or not to give precisely the kind of authority that Truman claimed that he had to the president, and they voted down that amendment. And so you have this moment that, that Black reaches back to in the legislative history of Tact Hartley to point out in no uncertain terms that he lacked, um, he lacked the will of Congress behind him.
0: And we will talk a little bit more about the, the nuances of that 6-3 decision. But first, let's hear from Paul in Whitestone, New York. Hi, Paul. Yes. We'll talk a bit more about this. Yeah. Uh, Would, oh, I'm... But to oh, go stand. ahead with your question, but hit the volume control on on your uh, remote, please. We're getting feedback.
10: Oh, um, let me stand a little bit away. Um, my question is this: Can you hear me? Yes, yes sir.
7: Mm-hmm.
10: Okay. Uh, how did the steel company management get away with uh, claiming that uh, they couldn't afford to give the uh, steel workers a raise?
0: I'm going to stop you there because of that feedback. For future callers, make sure that your audio is muted so we don't get the delay from the satellite. But can you answer what he asked so far? How did the steel companies get away with it? Well,
7: this was in many ways a political argument. This is where the the, the management is engaged in a political fight, as is uh, is Truman. Um, But that's not prominently featured in the court case itself. That's not one of the arguments that they bring to bear within the courts as a justification for why Truman could not C um, the steel mills.
0: So here is the 6-3 decision, and uh, the majority were Justices Hugo Black, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, Robert Jackson, Harold Burton, and Tom Clark. And the minority, Chief Justice Vinson, voted with the president who appointed him, Justices Stanley Reed and Sherman Minton. So we're going to return uh, to uh, another uh, oral argument, and this is uh, from... Uh, one of the other clerks, his name is George Nybank, and an exchange between Justices Jackson and Clark about their decision in this case. Let's listen.
3: After they announced the decision, at that time, uh, Tom Clark uh, sat on one side of uh, Jackson, probably on the left, and uh, Tom Clark announced his uh, uh, concurrence, and I don't remember whether he wrote an opinion or not. But uh, Jackson leaned over to him and whispered, I'm glad to see that you've decided to be a judge, Tom. Now, Jackson told me that.
0: Hmm. You reacted when you heard that. That's very interesting,
5: yes. Uh, And and of course, um, Jackson's talking about this from his own experience. He was attorney general under Roosevelt, uh, during which time he made some arguments very similar to those he's about to reject um, in this case. Same thing happened in Korematsu. Um, And for Jackson, it was very important to recognize the distinction between how he looked at the world as um, a political appointee, attorney general, uh, and how he looked at the world as a judge. Clark had been attorney general, and now he's a justice, and therefore he could think differently about the merits of an issue. That's what Jackson's saying to him.
7: uh, And when he was also operating at a different time, this is pre-Taft-Hartley, and this is in the midst of a total war. And so part of where he's going to try to justify why he's coming out differently is because things have changed.
6: So as
0: you said, Justice Hugo Black wrote the majority a decision, but there were also a number of written concurrences. And in the end, does that muddle the interpretation of the case?
5: It ends up not muddling it too much, uh, because there's one concurrence, of course, that's going to stand out. It will be the concurrence of Robert Jackson. Um, Jackson uh, does not serve on the court very long, uh, only Uh, unfortunately dies in the early 50s. Um, um, But one of the the great distinctions he's going to have in the short time he spends on the court is he's thought to be the greatest writer, perhaps, that the court has ever seen. Um, His concurrence is not just well-written, but it puts together a framework that's going to become... The lens, in a sense, the filter through which we're going to look at all subsequent subversion of powers case.
0: And because that framework is so important, we're going to take a minute and read you. He established three scenarios for executive action and how much power a president would have under those to withstand the legal challenges. And as our guests have said, these have become the benchmarks by which future executive uh, actions have been judged. So let's look at them. First of all, he writes in his concurrence, when the president acts to express or implied authorization of Congress, his authority is at its maximum. A second scenario When the president acts in absence of a congressional grant or denial of authority, he can rely only upon his his own independent powers. But there is a zone of twilight, and those words become important, (laughs) that he and Congress may have concurrent authority. And the third scenario, when the president takes measures incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. So what's so important about that framework?
5: Well, there's a lot, of course, that's important. Let me just give you one other background detail. Um, so Jackson's also returned to the court at this point um, after having served as chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. Um, so he's gone through World War II and had experiences with tyrants um, and with people that have no bounds or boundaries on their power. He's even going to have a line in here, a power of this sort has no beginning or end. My guess is it may have a little bit to do with his own personal experience. Uh, under, having to deal with the, the horrible um, wrongs committed by people that are not electorally responsible or constitutionally bound. Uh, but in this context, what's important here is the framework actually is going to lead us to be able to look at any given situation, particularly in the realm of foreign affairs, where a president's acting and ask, okay, has Congress spoken? And if so, what's it said? Uh, has it authorized this or not? Um, Knowing what Congress has said or authorized will help us evaluate the strength of the constitutional foundation of the president to act.
7: And he's scaling back from from Black's formalism by recognizing the value of practice. So he's going to put this case in that third category where Congress plainly has spoken and has spoken against um, the, the power that's, that, that Truman claims to have. Um, but in this zone of twilight, he recognizes that when presidents act, that congressional silence may invite, enable, if not invite is the precise language, um, um, legal authority to follow, right? And and invite presidents to continue acting in this particular domain. And so he's sensitive to the imperatives of war, the imperatives of practice, the delegations of authority, um, and the politics that surround them in ways that Black certainly was not.
5: Virtually every justice is is going to agree, with the exclusion of uh, Hugo Black, that historical practice has some relevance here. That's, that's significant. And it gives rise to a methodology which Jackson sort of exemplifies in his concurrence, which we call functionalism or balancing. Um, and that's, so that's what you're seeing in the, in the Jackson opinion.
0: So we talked about this earlier, but now it's at the time where it is most relevant. Joshua Matsky asks us, if Congress had declared war, would President Truman have had the legal authority to seize the steel mills?
7: It's not clear that it would follow, that the declaration would give the authority. Nonetheless, you see these justices um, looking critically and skeptically upon Truman's claims that, one, that there really was, there would be an emergency if the production of steel halted, that that would interrupt in an important way the ability of the nation to continue the coordination of the war effort, just as you see them uh, raising concerns about the imminence of the threat that the North Korean War actually presented, that if the enemy were at our doorsteps, they hint at various places, that they may come out differently. There's a recognition of the importance of expediency, both in terms of um, the war effort generally and the ability of the nation to continue to to wage it, Um, um, but they're they're not as impressed as Truman would have them.
0: In our final 25 minutes, we're going to talk about the impact of this decision on the immediate time frame and then also on the course of history and uh, cases that have involved presidential power. But before we do that, time for a few more calls. Maurice is watching us in Memphis. Hi, Maurice, you're on.
9: Uh, Good evening, everyone. My thunder was somewhat stolen uh, on on, uh, Justice Jackson. I, I called to speak about him. I thought that he was probably one of the most eloquent draftsmen To ever sit on the court, but he was also the last justice who read the law, and he was not a graduate from law school. Um, And also, I I think that one of the great statements uh, in American constitutional law and history was his majority opinion for the court in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. When you do get to Brown versus Board, hopefully someone will speak of his memorandum of law that he drafted uh, in anticipation of a concurrence that he was going to, to issue in Brown. But um, I believe his, his concurrence in this case uh, has a much more a far um, historical impact than Black's majority opinion.
5: I, I mean, I would agree um, uh, with what you've see, said about Justice Jackson. So he is somebody without much, really, maybe any formal legal training. Maybe as a law professor, that should tell me a great deal. Um, but um, but he's in there, in this mix, um, every bit as influential, every bit as informed and intelligently engaged as any other justice. Um, and I think that's a that's a real monument to him. And the second thing I think it's worth really stressing is his extraordinary eloquence, uh, his ability to sort of capture in relatively parse language, uh, I mean, parse language, beautiful, really profound Mm -hmm. thoughts. I might just say uh, roughly about a week ago, I heard Justice Scalia say the justice he most admired was Robert Jackson, which is really perhaps quite remarkable given that ideologically they aren't necessarily in the same camp. Justice Scalia himself, a fine writer, um, is saying, look, I think there's nobody better than Jackson. Um, Really a great. uh, Anybody who is interested should read the Jackson opinions for just how well they can cut through legalese, so to speak, and get to the heart of legal issues.
0: Robert is in Springfield, New Jersey. Hi, Robert.
5: Yes, thank you. Uh, Since the Youngstown case, in
10: what cases has the Supreme Court cited the three-tiered approach formulated by Justice Jackson and his concurrence?
5: Okay, thanks. We're going to talk um, about
0: that a little more, but brief
5: answer. Well, we've only got 20-some-odd minutes left. I can't list them all for <laughs> no, you. Exactly. Uh, it's going to get cited a lot. Now, one thing I should note, though, is this is part of what might say is a particular a- a key to J- Jackson's concurrence. The concurrence may not bind people to very much. That is to say, the framework is there, and people are, it, what it allows is people to use their own judgment to determine what, what has Congress said on this or not. Um, and that may be a particularly significant aspect of this. It's, it's influential, but it doesn't necessarily constrain very much. And, uh, and I hope we'll talk about this.
7: How we characterize that zone of twilight is going to change over time. And right. um, the president's ability to exercise authority and count on judicial backing is going to become more capacious than maybe even Jackson would have, would have hoped to anticipated. Zone of twilight
0: gives you a lot of latitude, doesn't it? <laughs> it
5: does. It gives you a lot of latitude. But the other thing not to lose sight of here is the framework really is expecting or depending on Congress to use some of its judgment and authority. It's relying heavily on Congress. to. Um, yes,
7: yeah. yes, and the, one of the things that the court is saying here is that we won't step in and do for you that which you won't do for yourself. We will, we will reliably come down when. Right.
0: Another Congress, Robert, this one over. in Chappaqua, New York. Hi, Robert.
7: Hi. Um, my recollection is that
9: um, the government took over the railroads during World War I. Uh, what is the, the, the difference between what occurred then and the decision that was made in, with the Youngstown case?
7: Well, it's a very different war. This is a big part of it. I mean, one of the interesting and important cases to come out of the seizures that occur in World War II also is the claiming of Montgomery Ward. Um, there, It isn't just about railroads, but there's a claim that in total war, where every dimension of the economy is implicated in the war effort, that the case that... That we need an uninterrupted flow of economic mm-hmm. production, um, he's able to make. The FDR is able to make again in ways that, that that Truman falters in his limited, constrained
5: police action. Whole different set of statutes are operating, uh, in, a, in a declaration of war, which is pertinent in the sense that it it reflects what we just said, which is full engagement with mm-hmm. the war effort. Mm-hmm.
0: So, with the six three decision, the steel mills will return to their their private owners. Harry Truman addressed the nation once again on this about a week after the Supreme Court decision. You're going to see that next. Uh, But you're also going to hear from Ohio Senator Robert Taft, who was the Taft and Taft-Hartley. So let's watch.
1: Uh, Mr. Truman has refused to use the legislative means given him by Congress to deal with the strike. For some reason, the president doesn't want to use the law. There isn't any reason why he shouldn't. It could be used quickly. I do not recommend that the Congress adopt the Taft-Hartley approach. I think it would be unwise, unfair, and quite possibly ineffective. The issue is squarely up to you gentlemen of the Congress. I hope the Congress will meet it by enacting fair and effective legislation.
0: That was June tenth, 1952. So what what's your reaction to what you just heard there?
5: Well, there, of course, is the basic political disagreement that the, the two men have. Uh, but it's also a radical constitutional difference. Um I think Taft Hartley uh, would have to be twisted to some extent to really apply to this particular circumstance. It could, but it it it, uh, it wasn't clear that it applied to strikes, um, like uh, labor labor strikes at all. Um, I, I should say strikes, particularly of an industry like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but maybe more importantly, I think what Truman's saying is um, this Taft Hartley w- would have constrained him so much. Um, uh, not just the showing it would have made, the temper, the, the reduced amount of time for uh, cooling off, um, those sorts of things. And what Truman was looking for was a statute that would have given him a lot more authority to the executive than Taft Hartley did.
7: Taft Hartley is just buying him 80 days. That's it. And he got 80 days from the, from the unions uh, voluntarily giving sure. it up.
0: Yes, but after the Supreme Court decision, the steelworkers did go out on strike. Probably. And uh, putting a stop to production in time of war. In our next video, we're going to watch some of the impact of that. The
11: 1952 steel strike in Youngstown was actually part of nationwide labor stoppage. The companies that operated plants in Youngstown, such as Youngstown Sheet and Tube, Uh, Republic Steel and U.S. Steel also had plants in a number of other locations. So from the East Coast through the industrial Midwest uh, all would have stopped work at the same time as those in Youngstown. So here we see picketers, uh, members of a local union, uh, 2163, which represented workers in the hot end of Youngstown Sheet and Tubes Campbell Works and they're playing cards. So picketing duty for active union members was an important feature of lengthy strikes, not necessarily in order to prevent replacement workers from entering the plant, because the steel companies did not attempt to operate their plants uh, during strikes during this period, but as an expression of union solidarity to show their support for the decisions that had been taken by the leadership that resulted in work stoppages of considerable length. The Steelworkers Strike of 1952 included over 500,000 members who were out for more than seven weeks. This represented the longest and costliest strike in collective bargaining in the steel industry up until that time.
0: So what was the impact and how was it resolved?
7: Well, the strike goes on for about 50 days. Um, there's not a whole lot of evidence, though, that it has the kind of bearing on the war effort that Truman claimed that it would. Um, that The skepticism raised by those who said, look, Truman, you're overplaying your, your, your case, Um, with regard to the the need for expediency and just how urgent everything is. This is sort of borne out. Um, After 50 days, uh, during this 50-day period, Congress tries to come forward, and they hold hearings, and they suggest that they're going to pass some laws, but they never get around quite to it. Um, And eventually, uh, labor management come to terms um, with a wage increase, and there's a change in the price um, that doesn't look especially different from the kinds of terms that were being debated four or five months prior.
0: And uh, we also want to talk about the impact on Harry Truman. There's some great Truman stories about this. Greg Cheers Sykes uh, tells us one of them. Is it true that Truman said to Justice Black, Hugo, I don't much care for your law, but by golly, this bourbon is good. Yes, that
5: uh, that seems to be reported in a lot of places. I will have to assume that that one is true. And um, So Black actually arranges for a dinner uh, for Truman to join the court because Black understands that Truman is angry and miffed and He's trying to find a way to uh, bring them together, Um, and Truman does uh, say that to to Black, and as far as we can tell or know from the historical record, Truman's pretty forgiving to most of the justices, but as we said before, he's um, going to save a special epithet for um, Tom Clark uh, that he'll go to his grave thinking.
0: Well, once again, we're going to return to George Nebank and his uh, memories of that dinner in Alexandria, Virginia, hosted by Justice Hugo Black that Harry Truman attended. Let's watch.
3: Justice Black used to have a dinner for the Supreme Court over in his home in Alexandria mm-hmm. after the close of every session, and um, uh, they were, this particular evening, all the justices were there and they had dinner, and the President used to come, know so, President Truman was there and they got to talking, evidently, about the steel seizure case. And you know, Truman said to them, you know, he said, I almost came up to argue that case myself. <laughs> and Justice Douglas leaned over and clapped him on the knee and said, Why didn't you do
0: it? Well.
3: <laughs> oh. But uh, happily, he didn't.
0: He didn't, but this case rankled Harry Truman for the rest of his life. We have a 1961 letter from Truman to Justice Tom Clark in which he writes, All of you were very kind to me, and I was glad to have the chance to discuss various things that had taken place in the past, particularly Justice Black's comments about my statement on the fact that the decision of the court in the Steele case was in line with the Dred Scott decision. I still think that was true.
5: Well, he, he had his principles. And again, I, uh, we can disagree with them, and, and one might think he was uh, not correct to think this way, but he, he believed in what he was doing. Um, and so uh, one can judge him on that basis. Um, and, 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 but uh, I'm not sure arguing the case would have made any difference at all um, to the Supreme Court. I think that the, the justice fully understood that their friendships with him, but those friendships did not shape the outcome.
7: And Youngstown, to this day, is held in incredibly high regard. Uh, the Supreme Court justices, the nominees to the Supreme Court, the last three right. or four, right. in their confirmation hearings regularly sure. go back and extol the virtues, in particular of Jackson's uh, concurring opinion. Sure. It's pointed to again and again in, right. in, in cases that have followed since. It's,
5: it's there certain things Supreme Court nominees have to say, just as a basic thing, in order to sort of get the job. And one of them is they agree with Jackson and Youngstown. Yeah.
0: Well, in fact, one of our regular viewers in this series, Warbo, uh, cites uh, and, and posts on Twitter the clip from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' confirmation <laughs> hearing stating the same Youngstown framework. So uh, the man currently leading the court also referred to it in his confirmation hearing. So our last couple minutes, we're going to talk about the impact today, and that's a good starting point for it. But first, let's hear from Bob in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Bob.
8: Good evening. Uh, Thank you for taking my question. Uh, I'd like to question Mr. Howell. In 1902, there was a coal strike in the United States. It started in the summer. It lasted into the autumn. And in October of 1902, um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was president, summoned uh, the head of the mine workers and the owners of the coal mines to the White House. And he basically threatened the mine owners to seize the mines if they don't compromise more. And my question to Mr. Howe is, is there any historical evidence to suggest that President Truman and his advisors were guided in their behavior by the stance of Teddy Roosevelt just 50 years earlier in 1902?
7: It's a great question. I honestly don't know. Um, Truman was regularly and his advisors were regularly inviting both sides to the White House to hash out the terms of a of a possible settlement. Um, but the extent to which he was drawing upon Teddy Roosevelt's example, um, I, I simply don't know. It's a great question.
5: Truman does act, cite um, in, in some of his defenses of his actions, he does cite Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus, he cites uh, the Louisiana Purchase. <clears throat> uh, there are a few few things that he does cite along the way as sort of what we'll call unilateral uh, presidential actions which were uh, he thought he, what he thought were similar to what he'd done. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, and Fred is in Chicago. Hi, Fred. What's your question?
5: Yes. Well, my question basically
8: is what that last uh, person mentioned. Um, if you if, if you would speak to the concurring opinion by uh, Justice uh, Frankfurter, who goes into the history of executives taking over various industries. For instance, during Lincoln's administration, uh, Lincoln uh, Lincoln's office took over all the telegraph company lines. Uh, emanating out of washington dc to other parts of the country that's the first one i'd like to have you speak to that concurring opinion of justice frankfurter and two how many of the justices in 1951 or whatever this case came down were appointed by republicans were they all reported were they they all appointed by democrats i.e Frank Roosevelt
5: and Harry Truman. Yes, to the latter question, and just in terms of the Frankfurter concurrence, it's a famous concurrence as well. So, keep one thing to note at the outset is, um, besides Black, everybody else is going to agree that historical practice has some relevance. And what Frankfurter is going to say is he thinks that the principal way in which historical uh, practice will have relevance, if there, if there's an on, long-standing unbroken tradition or practice of doing something. And in his view, there, there there was not a long-standing, unbroken practice of presidents doing this kind of thing.
7: And you have, in the meantime, the Congress intervening. So you have very different wars that are pointed to by the Truman administration. Again, the statutory landscape changing in the aftermath of World War II.
0: So uh we've talked about this as a as a presidential power and separation of powers mm-hmm. case. Uh, one conservative blog that I was reading about this suggested that the fragmented opinions have left government seizure of private property vulnerable legally.
5: Well, I mean I, I don't know about that. I, I I think that this is um uh I, I this is so contextual. I mean this depends so much on what we've just been saying. The 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 statute the network of statutes that applied then and the circumstances the president faced um, the, the takings clause typically deals with condemnation and that's a whole separate body of law uh, but the president didn't the president explicitly rejected condemnation as an alternative in this situation
0: you mentioned that the citations of this case and, and uh, subsequent opinions are. Too numerous for us to mention. We picked a couple just so folks can see some of the very, very recognizable cases where uh, the uh, Youngstown uh, steel seizure case has been cited. They include United States versus Nixon in 1974, which was, of course, about uh, President Nixon's executive power. In 1997, it was cited in the Clinton v. Jones case before the Supreme Court. In 2004, Hamdi versus Rumsfeld also cited the decision in this case, and uh, and actually the concurring opinion, I believe Jackson's concurring opinion, and in 2014, NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, versus Canning, which was a recess appointments case. Um, I want to show one more piece of video, and then we'll kind of wrap this all up. We've been talking about the, the, the fight between Congress and the President on who has authority, so let's bring that to the modern age. Uh, we had the opportunity to interview key members of Congress and the Judiciary Committees uh, for this series. Next, you'll see Senator Leahy and Representative Goodlatte on the use of executive power by presidents. Let's watch.
11: Any
9: president has used executive power. Uh, the
2: easy answer is if
5: Congress doesn't like
2: it, pass a law. i would like to see the court step up more Uh, and make decisions like that when the Congress or the private sector challenges the power of the executive branch. We have a president today who came to the Congress, as presidents do with his long list of things, every president does that, uh, that they would like the Congress to enact, change different policies. But he did something different that I'd never seen before. At the end of that, he said, and if you don't do it, I will.
0: Gentlemen, comments from both of you?
7: Well, I think, again, Jackson's concurrence is putting Congress on notice to say that, look, we will most reliably stand with you when you speak clearly about what the appropriate boundaries are of executive authority. Um, And when you don't speak, and when there is an unbroken chain of historical precedent, which is going to come back in subsequent court cases, there is room for presidents to maneuver, and presidents certainly have. So this case is sometimes recognized, often recognized as, Uh, a a, a moment when the judiciary stepped in and checked a wartime president and in that sense it appears to be um, big and important but it also what the primary way in which it it tends to be invoked is again by reference to a framework a framework a way of thinking and when you think about the president's ability to exercise power and exercise unilateral powers by reference to a will of congress that is incredibly nebulous that's very hard to navigate you can find, presidents can find lots of opportunities to act.
5: It's also been cited, you, you <laughs> gave a stream of opinions in which it was cited, um, and the court went on to sort of rule against the executive, but there are other cases in which the court has cited it and, and actually upheld what the executive has done. And I might just say, Professor Howell's written brilliantly about the fact that um, it's much harder for Congress to act than it is for the president to act. And so if we're left with a, a framework that depends on Congress acting... Exactly we have a problem. That is to say, Congress has got a problem uh, because it's never going to be able to act as quickly or efficiently or as clearly as the president is, especially in times of uh, emergency.
0: Uh, As we're getting toward the end of the program here, I want to tell you uh, about some upcoming cases. We have 12 altogether. We'll be at this until the middle of December doing live programs. And then it will, of course, re-air on C-SPAN and be available for you to watch at your own convenience on our website. Uh, But if you've been watching... Uh, you know that we have published a book of a collection of, of pieces that are backgrounds uh, to these cases, written by Tony Morrow, who's been covering the court for about thirty years, and uh, that's assembled in a book called Landmark Cases. It's available for eight dollars and ninety-five cents, our cost, uh, on our website. So if you go to cspan.org, search Landmark Cases. If you're interested, you'll find how to, how to order it, and we'll get it to you really quickly. So you have it for the rest of this series, and then you can also see some of the background of earlier cases that we have done. Let's uh, hear from Larry in Englewood, Colorado. Hey, Larry, you're on.
9: Good evening. Another wonderful episode. I wondered if in these perennial battles between Congress, uh, legislative, judicial, and executive branch, where are we at today on it? This is an ebb and a flow situation. Who holds the power right now, and, and what determines, aside from who designates the justice,
7: uh, how these things are going to go? Thank
0: you. Thank you, Larry.
7: Well, I think we're, <clears throat> we're seeing a lot more flow than Ebb right now. Um, and part of what's going on is what are the appropriate boundaries of war? Again, the most of the concurring opinions rec- recognize the, the, the salience of war and the, the, the importance of expediency. And when we live in an era where there are multiple wars on terror, and ongoing military deployments abroad, and the boundaries between peace and war are not so clear, that then natural questions arise about what the reservoir is of presidential power, and the president's ability to push outwards on the boundaries of, of, of his, someday her, authority.
5: Uh, just may, maybe two additional thoughts. I mean, again, uh, this case gives us the language uh, we, we can use for talking about these kinds of situations, yes. but it doesn't tell us the direction in which... We're going to go. It doesn't tell us what outcome we're going to come up with. Um, so we can have a similar language. We can all speak French, so to speak. But it, we, might speak, it, it, we might be saying different things uh, at the end of the day. Um, and I think that's, that's y- y- the significance of Youngtown, Youngstown. It's important, obviously, in, in, in terms of its facts and its outcome, but it also gives us this lexicon that we can use down the road. But the other thing I would say is um, we also, I, I think, should not forget that the court itself functions within a historical and social context. And that also was important in Youngstown. Uh, The public perception, the justice's perception of the popularity of this particular presidential action, I think, wasn't lost. Chief Justice Rehnquist writes in his own memoir about the fact that he thinks all the justices were aware of that. And that may have helped, in some ways, shape their opinions or attitudes about whether or not they could rule against him and in a sense, get away with it.
0: Yeah, that's important for people to understand, because when you when you actually have the opportunity to talk to the justice or hear them, they all act as though they insulate themselves from right. public opinion. But that, in reality, doesn't Well,
5: I, I will just defer to Chief Justice Rehnquist, who in his own memoir said, yes, but we also read newspapers, and we also pay attention to the news, and we're aware of all those things. And he said, we can't get it out of our heads. So I, I, um, I will just defer to him in that regard. But But... What the justices also have to do is, if it's in their heads, they still have to use a language. They still have to get to this language in Youngstown to be able to frame and put together in these words and these concepts what they may be thinking about insofar as the particular context in front of them is about.
0: We have a minute left, so it's a very different country now. Uh, What about the court itself? Is it a very different kind of court?
5: It's a very different court. Um, This is a court now that's dominated by Republicans um, as opposed to Democrats, although, again, the parties themselves... Uh, they they represent different particular positions and attitudes um, insofar as policies and the Constitution is concerned. So I think saying there's a lot of Republicans doesn't necessarily tell you very much about how they necessarily look at particular issues. Um, but the court's also different because it has so much more precedent now to deal with in, in these cases that come before it. You mentioned Hamdi, some other cases. Um, now when a case comes up that has a conflict between the president and Congress, and it may relate to foreign affairs, they're precedents there really weren't that many, uh, maybe arguably none, maybe uh, at best one or two cases the court could rely on in Youngstown. Uh, And that's, again, why it became such a significant case. It's a groundbreaking case in the sense that the court's saying, we're going to go now. We're going to hear these kinds of cases.
0: And uh, for the last 30 seconds, I'm going to ask you to sum this up for us, William Howell. Why is this case significant?
7: I think what we've said is that it points to a moment that the courts will periodically intervene and check presidential power generally and presidential power during war in, in uh, more specifically. And again, it sets up a framework by which to evaluate and adjudicate disputes that occur across the various branches of government. It's really a landmark case um, in uh, in matters involving presidential power.
0: Once again, two terrific guests, William Howell and Michael Gerhardt, thank you to both of you for being here tonight. Thank Thanks for all your questions by phone, by uh, tweets, and uh, also on uh, the uh, Facebook page. They really add to our discussion. Thanks for being with us.
2: continues next Monday with the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education. In that case, the justices struck down the doctrine of separate but equal, established by the earlier Supreme Court case, Plessy v. Ferguson. In Brown, the court ruled racial segregation in public schools is inherently unequal and unconstitutional, based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Find out more next Monday live at 9 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN, C-SPAN 3, and C-SPAN Radio. You can also learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series online by going to cspan.org slash landmark And from the website, you can order C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case, written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available
10: for $8.95 plus shipping.